This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is brought to you in part by Europa Editions, publishers of The Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree, a finalist for the 2020 International Booker Prize. This moving work of magical realism follows one Iranian family over the decade following the 1979 revolution, witnessing the power of the imagination and storytelling in the face of cruelty. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, LARB's Gender and Sexuality Editor, and I'm alone in the remote studio while my co-hosts Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf are off on various other assignments. Today I've got a conversation with Melissa Falavino about her debut essay collection, Tomboyland. The collection is magisterial and moving, traversing essays that grapple with what it means to have a body, how that body and its meaning circulate in language and in social space, often in ways that are unpredictable, uncontrollable, and as we talk about at length, frequently incoherent. So stay tuned for those headier topics, but also for just some really good conversation about modernist writers and roller derby and much more. So without any more preface, let's get straight to the conversation. I'm excited to have Melissa Falaveno on the line with me today. Melissa is a Brooklyn-based writer and editor, as well as a writing instructor at Sarah Lawrence College. A former senior editor for Poets and Writers magazine, Melissa's work has appeared in a number of publications, including Bitch, Prairie Schooner, The Millions, and Best American Essays 2016. She joins me today to talk about her first collection, Tomboyland, which was released this month. Falaveno's elegant essays unpack her at once unusual and absolutely commonplace experience of gender, of either not fitting neatly into the binary boxes in which language and most culture constrains the unruly experience of our bodies, as well as finding places in which her body doesn't feel so out of place. Across Wisconsin Plains, Brooklyn Parks, in bars and back alleys, In encounters with strangers and friends, Melissa explores what it means to have a body, to have her body, and how that body shapes a way of moving through the world that she is still wrestling with and learning from. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. Uh, Anytime. Happy to do it. (laughs) So actually, you know, I think I want to start by talking about the title essay, Tomboyland. So can we first talk about what Tomboyland is, like what you mean by Tomboyland? <laughs> That's a good question. I'm not even sure if I have an answer to it. You know, what's funny is that as we were putting this book together, it had a different working title. And at a certain point, my editor and I had a conversation and she was like, I think we need something that like captures the gender and body element of this book more. And we kind of like, circled around so many different ideas and words and phrases. And at some point, we just sort of stumbled upon this made-up word that combined elements of the body, for me, the queer body, Mm -hmm. gender, and the land. And I had been thinking about it when I was working on revisions of that essay. And it just sort of started to feel like an ethos. (laughs) And I started thinking about the Midwest, particularly the Midwest that I come from, which is the working class semi-rural part, as this sort of like 
<laughs> weird, dreamy land of tomboys. So it was kind of like a working idea that I had in my head, and then it stuck. So I think maybe it's more a state of mind than something with actual meaning. <laughs> well, so that's what I want to, I guess, kind of get into. And this is a way of opening up into the figure of the tomboy, which mm-hmm. just on a personal kind of research level has like fascinated me for mm-hmm. a long time, because there's the opposite of the tomboy, right, is the sissy. And right. the sissy is a culturally derided figure, whereas yes. the tomboy for a time, at least, is a very culturally valued figure. And that has everything to do with the direction of quote unquote gender direction in the tomboy and the sissy, right? So the tomboy is a girl who is lauded and valued because she embodies or performs masculinity. And the Mm -hmm. sissy is derided precisely because he embodies femininity. So on the one hand, and I don't want to spoil too much of this for your (laughs) readers, but one of the things that I learned while reading this essay is that the history of the tomboy is actually kind of rooted originally in white supremacy, right? That it is like a response to fears of racial replacement. So as you write, it's about making strong white women who could bear and raise children and be Mm self-reliant, which I'm often confronted with the fact that the rigidly enforced hierarchies of a kind of white heterosexual patriarchy are always pretty flexible when it seems like they're ever at threat, meaning like white straight men. So then it's like, oh, well, now it's okay for you to be a woman who has more masculine qualities. But what I want to talk about in The Tomboy is the tomboy, as you kind of unpack her, is both a temporally and geographically marked figure. So can you talk about what is the time of the tomboy and why do you kind of locate the tomboy specifically? And I think you're absolutely right it has a unique purchase in the Midwest and in working class culture. Yeah, exactly. Well, first of all, I love the drawing out of the comparisons between the tomboy and the sissy. I just think it's fascinating and super important Mm -hmm. to look at that. And something that I didn't even get into in this essay was how when I was coming of age and was still very much a tomboy, but I guess when I was kind of moving out of tomboyism and doing what I refer to in the book as tomboy taming, when I was like shoving myself back into these sort of feminine structures, my best friends were gay boys who were very much in the closet and nobody was out where Mm -hmm. I came from. So I would actually love to one day look at that relationship between the tomboy and the sissy. That you guys are like mutually supporting one another in your own kind of gender nonconformity. Yeah. And like, you know, where we come from, like we weren't, talking about it, you know, Mm. but we just found each other. And I kind of forgot about that for a time because, and this relates to the temporal question, when I was in late middle school, high school, I really, like I said, worked myself back into that sort of feminine structure, tamed myself out of the tomboy, which is what's expected. Yes, the tomboy is okay, but only for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then she's expected to shape herself back into that of a woman where she is the object of the male desire and where she becomes a mother and a wife. And that's an okay trajectory. But when she doesn't tame herself out of it and, you know, for instance, starts to identify as a queer woman or a lesbian, that's a threat. And so that's sort of the temporal basis. Like, yes, tomboys are okay, but only until they're of breeding age. 
and then they're expected to be women again or you know young ladies right yeah exactly (laughs) yes like a woman in a very particular and suddenly radically limited kind of way right Right. and of course not actually a woman at all a girl who is just now of like reproductive age i could talk about this forever just because it fascinates me so much (laughs) and but then also the sort of regional connection is I really do feel like the tomboy is related to the Midwest, but she's also anywhere that's rural, you know? And I think we have these images of Midwestern tomboys because of like Laura Ingalls Wilder. But I think that it's a state of being for young girls growing up in rural places and for women, you know, because we are working class, you know, we see older women working, working class jobs, you know, it's totally normal for women to look a little more masculine out of necessity. And we're running around and we're playing outside and we're in the fields and we're climbing trees and we're building forts and we're doing all this stuff in the woods and in landscapes that don't exist in cities that girls growing up in cities don't have access to. And of course there are tomboys in the cities, but I think that sort of rural working class connection has a lot to do with the image of the tomboy as we've come to know her. Yes, absolutely. The tomboy is never a Deb. She's the opposite kind of figure. So two things to pick up on what you're saying. One, can you talk about how you navigated as much as you can remember? And I know that you write about how memory is actually this quite tricky thing. Like how you remember that moment of sudden reversal where it was okay to be a tomboy and then suddenly it wasn't. And you kind of had to readjust. Yeah. What's interesting, and I write about this in the book, is that I had really forgotten that I did that. In the way that we do, which is so interesting, I like rewrote my narrative. And I think for the past 15, 20 years, I've had this narrative of myself that's like, oh, you know, I was a tomboy and then I was a queer woman. And I forgot that in these really impressionable adolescent years, I started wearing skirts and I started wearing makeup and I plucked my eyebrows and I wore a lot of perfume and I wore heels to school and I really lived in this feminine shape. You know, I was really trying to dig into the motivations behind that and all I could kind of excavate was that I knew that that's what girls were supposed to look like. You know, I grew up in a really small town, a really small high school. This was a group of kids that had grown up together and we'd been going to school together since kindergarten. So we all knew each other very intimately. Everyone knew everybody's secrets. And in a town like that, it's like the popular girls are the girls that you strive to be who have the attentions of all the boys and in some cases the men. So I just saw that and I knew that to be popular or be respected or be pretty or be wanted was to be good. So that's what I worked toward. And it wasn't until years later after college that I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Can I say that on this? I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. You can say that. We'll bleep you on the radio, (laughs) but you'll be in your full vulgarity on the podcast version. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Then I sort of shed that once again and kind of returned to form and really felt like I was inhabiting my body again, or perhaps for the first time. What I want to draw out of this And in a second, I also want to talk about how coming into one's queer body or one's gay body or bisexual body Mm -hmm. or however we want to kind of mark the body in its like sexual identity or as a nexus of desires, that 
also is a performance in Mm -hmm. a number of interesting ways. But I think that both of these things get at something that you touch on so well in this particular essay and throughout is gender as an incoherent experience. So one of the quotes that you have, which I'll just do you the embarrassment of reading in in my own voice, (laughs) is, I don't look like a woman, and I don't always feel like one. Uncertainty is hardly unique among those of us born into female bodies, but as my own body moves through the world, it is marked by one common question. What are you? And the honest answer is, I don't really know. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, that was sort of a revelation that I had as I was writing that essay. I was having all these experiences that were sort of increasing. This still happens in my life, but the revelation was pretty recent. I talk about being a late bloomer in a lot of ways. And a lot of that also has to do with like my realization of myself within a culture or community or like whatever. But (laughs) I was like in my mid thirties and I realized everywhere I went, I was getting misgendered and it wasn't a new experience, but for some reason it was increasing. And I looked at myself one day in the mirror and I was like, what's happening? I mean, do you look more masculine than you used to? Are you dressing Mm. differently? Like what, as you get older, I always make the joke that the older I get, the more like my dad, I look, but it's so true. Like I'm just (laughs) starting to look more and more like my dad, which is fine because my dad is very handsome and I don't mind being called handsome, but it was just this weird moment of disconnect where I was like, oh, people don't see me as a woman whoa, (laughs) you know? And it was revelatory because I had always just sort of, I guess, de facto thought of myself as a woman. And I had not interrogated that. Even as my queer friends were identifying as non-binary, some of whom were, were and are trans, like I wasn't interrogating my own gender identity at all. I was just sort of existing. And it wasn't until I realized how other people were perceiving me and how I was being coded and decoded out in the world that I was like, well, I know I'm queer and I've used the word gender queer, but what does that actually mean? And basically the process of writing that essay was like digging into that question of, well, am I a woman or am I not? Am I something else? Am I non-binary? Is saying that I'm queer or gender queer enough? Do I need a label? Do I need to fit into some other box that I have not quite yet fit myself into? It was just an exploration of that. And whoever reads this essay will probably realize at the end that I don't come to really any answers. I just sort (laughs) of give you more questions to ask. And like, I guess the place where I arrived was that it's okay to sort of inhabit a question and just live in your body and know that it's kind of a mystery And these words that we use to describe our bodies and our sexualities are just words that we've created to try to make sense of ourselves. And it's okay if you don't know where you fit within them. But isn't it also the case when you talk about how your body, because of its kind of slippage between genders, which sometimes you'll describe as genderqueer, sometimes you'll describe as androgynous, I think it actually highlights for others, particularly men, their own mystery at the core of their gender experience. What you're writing about is not totally unfamiliar, certainly to those of us who are queer or are in queer studies, right. those kind of right. things. It's um, old news to Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All of us at kind of the Sarah Lawrence contingent, it's like we, we get what that's about. But I have this 
experience frequently when like your queerness or your gender difference, it makes someone else realize the insolidity of their own experience of gender. Mm -hmm. Because you say that oftentimes whenever you're misgendered, it's usually by men. Whenever Mm -hmm. you feel that there's a kind of threatening reception of your, not even your presentation, just your body, just who you are and how you dress, that that is usually about men or coming from men. So Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if in a sense, it's like what you're also leading us to in these essays is to understand our own experience of gender, to recover in the way that you did your transition story in your teenage years where you were like, oh, I don't remember trying to be like, quote unquote, a girl. But that if you're recovering that for all of us, kind of centering our own ambiguous experience of gender. Yeah, absolutely. And also this really amazing and shocking thing happened to me while I was writing this book where a friend of mine who's trans posted something about how when they presented as a woman, they were talking about the feeling of fear in the street, like at night, walking around outside in a feminine looking body and being afraid. This experience that every woman or you know femme person has had where they glance over their shoulder at night and they see a masculine shape walking behind them and they're walking too close and suddenly you're terrified and you're like, okay, this person attacks me. What's my plan? What am I going to do? You put your key between your finger or whatever. You imagine any number of scenarios that might happen. Everybody with a body like this has experienced that. But as they were writing this, I was like having these revelations about my body being coded as masculine, as man. And I was like, oh shit, have I ever walked too close to a femme body at night? Oh, interesting. Yeah. And threatened and made them feel threatened. Like if they just glanced over their shoulder and read me as a man, have I done that to someone? And it was just like, it blew my head apart. (laughs) And I just, and I realized the way that we can exist in our bodies that I could at once have that experience all the time. Even now, even as I present a little more masculine, maybe than I used to, I still have that experience at night all the time, but that I could also be a perceived threat in that space as well, which was wild. (laughs) Yeah. But also that's ethical relation is to like think about those kind of things. Yeah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. I've been speaking with Melissa Falavino, author of Tomboyland. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Anne Friedman on the line with us today. Anne's new book is called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. It's co-written with her friend, Aminatu So, and Anne is calling us to give us a book recommendation. Anne, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a little book called August 9th Fog by Catherine oh. Scanlon. Has someone else recommended this book? <laughs> no, but I, I have it and I'm a fan. But so tell listeners about the book. It's interesting. I don't quite know what to call it. I think it's shelved in fiction. I read it as poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, but the story is that Catherine Scanlon went to an estate sale in Illinois and purchased a stranger's diary. And the diary was full of these kind of just mundane details of 
the person's life. The owner of the diary was 86 years old when she started recording the details of her life. And so it's sort of this like later in life, the minutia of like what she was going through. And so Catherine Scanlon got kind of obsessed with this and ended up dissecting it, like pulling different lines from different entries and rearranging it. And the result is this little book, which, like I said, like reads kind of like poetry. There are little snippets on every page. Yeah. How did you discover it? A friend who works in publishing sent it to me. And so it was a gift. And it is not maybe the kind of book I would have purchased for myself. It's hard. It doesn't really have like a what is it about clear selling point but i think i have really connected with it in the pandemic in the sense that like it feels kind of good to have these little tiny life details mirrored to me and to really see the way that with a little bit of time and a stranger's eye these details can become art yeah also a funny thing about this book is that my partner wrote a similar book that's a and he calls it a literary supercut Mm. it's just uh, nature descriptions from other canonical novels so he Mm -hmm. and Catherine got together to chat about this form that they're both kind of doing at the same time I love it 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 feels like literary collage or something to me like yeah totally and she also has another book out that just came out recently called The Dominant Animal in case people want to to check out other books by Catherine. Um, yeah, this is not a brand, brand new book for sure. Okay, so Anne, tell us the title of the book again and the author. The book is August 9th, Fog by Catherine Scanlon. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Anne Friedman. Her new book is called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, co-written with Aminatu. So. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Melissa Falavino, author of Tomboyland. There's another kind of moment where you, or sphere in which I guess you you feel that you struggle to fit in or, or to be read as yourself in its authentic complexity, which is your sexuality, right? So you mm-hmm. identify as bisexual, but mm-hmm. you feel conflicted or uncertain about labels like queer like there's there's one moment where you're talking about going to the dyke march and you're like i was <laughs> thinking do i should i really be here Am yeah I, do i have a right to be here um and all of right. this was of course solved by you being passed a t-shirt by a friend of yours um, <laughs> she's like put uh, this dyke t-shirt yeah on. exactly like, okay <laughs> um, but, but can you talk because that is a thing that um especially in the queer community it is like and and this i think is another side of the race to labels, mm. which is that bisexual, because it kind of at least checks two boxes, if not mm-hmm. that kind of like very like, well, or anything else in, in the third, yes. it always is seen as suspect identity. And I've heard that. I was a person that, you know, I had good sexual relationships with women before, you know, I kind of understood my own queerness. Mm-hmm. And those were then suddenly all suspicious, right? right? It's like, well, but you couldn't have really enjoyed that. Right. And, you know, and I, de- I identify purely as, as gay. And it's like, well, but I did. Like, if mm-hmm. I, to say that I didn't would be to, in fact, as you, and this is what I want to get to, this question of erasure is mm-hmm. to say that, like, oh, that wasn't real. 
and right. it was real and it doesn't invalidate this. And, and bisexual people face this all the time, the suspicion. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about that and whether or not you think that culture is getting any better with regard to kind of the representation of bisexual experience? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I could think, and I do think about this all the time, and I could talk about it forever. So just cut me <laughs> off if I start going way too long. Yeah, I mean, A, I do think it's getting better for sure. I mean, there's more bisexual representation in in sort of pop culture right now. And you love to see it, as they say. But yeah, I mean, bisexual erasure is real and is really common, you know, both from within the queer community and from without it. And really what I write about in that piece a lot is how I've experienced it more in the queer community, which always since I really have been myself, you know, has been my community. You know, most of my closest friends identify as queer, you know, back my, my kind of crew back in Madison, most of them are queer. Most of the people I connect to and call my chosen family are queer. And even in perhaps especially the kind of erasure that exists in like these really flippant comments mm -hmm. that kind of work to negate one's experience. Just like you said, like, you know, I remember when I was in my 20s and I fell in love with a woman for the first time and I had already by then had developed these great relationships and a, and a really solid community of, of mostly queer women. And I just like remember the way that they responded, which was like, obviously, or like about time you, you know, like figured it out or like whatever. And they were just, they were just saying stuff and they were happy to have me, you know, because I had like, I had been with men, you know, in, in relationships. I had only been with men. I had you know been with women romantically, but all my relationships until that point had been with men. And I think a lot of my queer friends were like, Hmm, you know, and so then when this new relationship blossomed, they were like, finally, she's, you know, she's one of our own. She's coming home, you know, the prodigal son or whatever. <laughs> now I'm mi mixing metaphors, but right, coming sorry. home to roost. <laughs> and I get that because you, like, as a queer person, you want more people in your community and you want to be seen and you want to share those experiences and you know, we're still the minority. And even even if people will try to tell us that we're not, because mm -hmm. a lot of people do, we are. And so I get it. I totally get it on the one hand. And I have I am sure that I have been guilty of that kind of like offhand comment about somebody who expresses themselves as queer for the first time. But in that process of negating like the experiences of love and companionship and partnership that I had with men, it's erasing that part of me, which is still very true. And now the sort of flip side of that, having been in a relationship with a man for many years, I feel like the queer part of me often gets erased. It's like, oh, okay, so she's straight now, or, you know, has perhaps been straight all along, or is definitely just gay and can't figure it out. You know, there's all of these sort of iterations of assumptions that people make about queer people. And I think it's particularly, I don't know if it's particularly hard. It's just my experience that as a woman-ish <laughs> who, <laughs> you know, rep who presents in a very, you know, pretty masculine, pretty butchish body, 
Like it's really hard for a lot of people to reconcile that I might be sexually attracted to men. And that is, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me. And I think that like, we just have a hard time because of our binary thinking, looking at a body like mine, who is not a gay man and, th- and saying that she could be attracted to anybody other than a woman. And it's just all part of the way that we're like trained and we're, you know, we learn these sort of expectations and assumptions about people based on how they look. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which is as if you could ever really know. Right. Like right, that's, right. That's what all of these experiences, the liminal experiences of semina- of sexuality or gender, right. right? Those all point to the unknowability to kind of yes. the, the continuing mystery that we try to put boxes around, but always, always fail to do. Absolutely. Um, so now that we've talked about places where you feel that your gender <laughs> and sexuality were constrained, I also <laughs> want to highlight these places that you discover in which like gender, if not totally unproblematic can also mm-hmm. be free, right? And at mm-hmm. least two of those places are softball and roller derby. And I want to, I think I want to talk to you about roller derby. Can okay. you just talk to me about what it's like, like what it feels like, what that scene is like, mm-hmm. and how that was kind of a healing or possible space for you? Yeah, absolutely. Roller derby for me, I talk about it Uh, You know, it's just like, it was a turning point for me. I've always been an athlete. You know, I write about my, my young, my younger life as an athlete and my sort of aspirations to be an athlete beyond high school failed. Um, but, um, (laughs) it's true of most of us, Melissa. (laughs) Yes. Oh yes. Yes. (laughs) But I've always identified as an athlete and I'm still an athlete and I feel most at home in my body when I'm doing something athletic or active and, um, you know, however, whatever shape that might take. But when I discovered roller derby, I was 23, I believe. And the scene as it exists now was still really new. So the kind of roller derby, flat track roller derby revolution, the re sort of emergence of it started in 2004. And I discovered it in 2005. And the team in Madison, Wisconsin, where I lived at the time was one of the first teams in what would become this international league. And it was just so weird and so fun and so cool. And I remember going to a game because a friend of mine who I met through the BDSM community in Madison was like, come watch this. And she played. And um, I sat on the floor at this roller rink where I grew up going and skating for birthday parties and stuff. And I was like, I need to do that. <laughs> it was just this like immediate, like, I will do this. So I joined the following year and it was just like a revolution, both, you know, like as an athlete, it was a sport that was, you know, all women and a lot of queer people. And it was very subversive and it was very alternative. So it was sport, which is like this very kind of, traditional thing where I come from, but with this alternative subcultural vibe, which I was already into and loved and latching onto. Yeah. And one that's also like uniquely aggressive, but also loving. Yes. Right. Like that's a very unique combination that I feel like the culture of roller derby has. Right. Like I, you know, 
I played ice hockey when I was a kid, but I wasn't allowed to check. I did anyway. I got ejected from games. <laughs> I was like this little ball of violence and in a girl that is not okay. And mm-hmm. so I was always punished for it. And in most places, it's not cool to be violent. So I get it. But in this sport, suddenly they were like, yes, yes, no, we want you to be more violent. <laughs> we want you to like hit the shit out of that woman. We want you to knock her down. And that is how you play this game. And I was like, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I got to be like hyper aggressive. I got to be violent. I got to just like hit the crap out of people. And we were also really good friends. So we would just like beat the crap out of each other on the rink. And then we would go out and, you know, drink and party. And like, and that was where I met all of these women who would become like, my chosen family. And they're still the people who are closest in my life. The sport has changed a lot since then. This was back in 2006 through nine, I played in Madison. Mm. And then I played for a year in New York. And since then, it's also had its kind of own, another sort of round of growth. And it's, it's more inclusive now in both language and sort of body and another sort of rebirth. And, but it's, I don't know. It's a really special community. It's very grassroots. It's all DIY. You know, everybody who plays it makes it happen. Nobody gets paid. And the people who do it are really smart. And they're like scientists and mathematicians and writers (laughs) and doctors. And they're like over the map. (laughs) They're just really cool people who are making this thing happen. So I'm very grateful to have been a part of it. And um, Harlot Bronte, my moniker, still lives despite my retirement. (laughs) That's awesome. I I love those kind of spaces where you feel like you can just real, like I, and you get this in at this in your writing is like, that's a place where you could really just be yourself. Yes. In a way that was like uninhibited and unmediated. hundred percent. So I want to, as we kind of wrap up, I want to just talk to you a little bit about craft which is usually something nobody wants to talk about. <laughs> oh, um, I want to talk about it. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, one of the things we were talking about this a little bit before the interview started, in that kind of opening essay, Finger of God, right? Mm-hmm. You have this very magisterial way of moving between kind of subjects or areas of focus, between these kind of macro concerns of an essay and the micro details of kind of the, the narration of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that particular essay, right, you're talking about weather, it's about tornadoes, it's about small towns, it's about grief, it's about women, it's about class, right? And you capture all of this and you never seem to, as I recount it now, it sounds overwhelming, <laughs> but it doesn't feel that way in the movement of the essay. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you think about essays as a form and how you kind of map out your essays? Well, I love this question. (laughs) Um, As an essayist, I just love the essay as form. And I really, I I keep saying this, but I really mean it. I could talk about the essay forever. And I, I teach the essay now. And I'm sure that like, I just talk way too much about it. But I think that part of the reason I love it is because it's this form that just possesses so many possibilities, um, endless possibilities, really. And it's not limited to 
traditional sort of expectations of structure or even content. So what I generally tend to do is like, I find subjects that I'm interested in, or like I I start circling around a question or an idea, something that's lodged somewhere in my brain. And then I realize that that subject is connected to something else that might be seemingly disparate. And so I, I try to sort of circle around that connection as it exists in my mind. And it might not make sense, but I dig into that question of connection and try to pull out the threads. So I guess I'm just, I'm always like looking at these, these sort of seemingly disparate subjects and, and trying to find that thread of connection. And I don't focus too much on whether or not they are making sense on the page until I get kind of to the end of a draft. And then, and then I sort of pull those threads out and figure out what's working, what's not. So finger of God was like, I knew I was obsessed with this tornado. I was obsessed with the idea of faith and myth and religion and, and grief and, and womanhood um, and all of these things. And I was like, okay, can I tie them together? This is an experiment. So hopefully it worked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so are there people kind of influences for you? Who like yep. you can point to as people that have shaped the way that you that you write or that you think about um, you know the topics that you address. Absolutely, um, too many to name. But the books that are on my like Bible shelf, you know, that I turn to all the time for inspiration, that really like I really deeply resonate with their work are Rebecca Solnit's early earlier books, like A Field Guide mm. to Getting Lost, The Far Away Nearby. That's like it for me. Joanne Beard's The Boys of My Youth, and probably, well, we'll just stick to those two for now. But they're people who sort of, you know, Solna in particular in those earlier books, she writes about this process of inhabiting a question and kind of living in the mystery of that question on the page. And that has always stuck with me, like, when I'm writing an essay, I'm not trying to give you any answers. I'm just trying to write into a question and allow myself to live in that question for a while and hopefully allow you the space to live in a question too. And maybe it's a new question or maybe it's something that you haven't considered yet or maybe it's something you also have struggled with. But like allowing ourselves to just live in the question on the page for a while and kind of allow ourselves to meander from topic to topic and figure out those connective tissues as we go. That to me is, I don't know what the form is all about. Yeah. I also notice that you kind of name check at least a couple, or you seem to have an investment, which I would also share in kind of modernist women writers. So like uh, this would be Virginia Woolf, obviously, and the St. Vincent Millay, little surprised that we don't see any mention of Willa Cather in your writing, but given the topic. Yeah, I am woefully unread when it comes to Willa Cather, actually. Oh my God. Oh, That's a project I need to work on, I think. Oh, I am a huge, and it's like, it is in many ways a problem and a burden to be a Willa Cather fan, because there are (laughs) definitely like many things that she does that you are like, oh my God, please, why? Oh, Virginia Woolf too. Yeah, also true. Not not unproblematic. (laughs) But I do think, I wonder... I've always find those writers at a very, and that time period in general, a very interesting resource because of how they get at questions about gender, questions about sexuality, mm-hmm. at moments when they're 
kind of taking shape, but not fixed in the same way that they are now in popular mm -hmm. imagination. And mm -hmm. the way that perhaps because of that, they leave those questions open. Yes. So I, I'm wondering if like how you think about those kind of modernist women writers, you know, many of them queer, obviously also, mm -hmm. um, as like influences for you or, or how they've shaped maybe the way that you think about gender. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I am sure that I'm not alone in this experience, but Virginia Woolf was just a, was like a, a sharp 180 for me in terms of my understanding of both what literature can be and what, you know, a woman writer is and, and what she can do. And I remember reading Mrs. Dalloway for the first time uh, mm. and to the lighthouse very soon thereafter and just being like gobsmacked, like uh, what? <laughs> and I, you know, I, I grew up reading books, but just, it took, it took a college course to get to her. And I studied literature in college um, as well as creative writing and, I don't know. It just, she blew my mind open. And I, I think that like, I remember, I can see myself reading Mrs. Dalloway and like imagining this woman walking around <laughs> and then like, I couldn't articulate at the time what it was, but just this, this meandering quality and this, this sense of being in one's mind and, allowing yourself both as a writer and a character to to be there to just inhabit that wandering this meandering which then you know of course is what rebecca solnit writes about of course yeah yeah and and then i read a room of one's own and i was like okay that's it <laughs> you know it was <laughs> like this like you know manifesto on the work of a woman writer you know originally a, a talk called Pro the professions of women wherein she was like, look, I'm not a wife. I'm not a mother. Well, she was a wife, but I'm not a mother. But I still have all of these sort of things that have been drilled into me as a woman that I need to kill. <laughs> you know, I need mm. to kill them. I need to kill the angel in the house. And, and that concept was just so important for me when I was making some early decisions about my life and my career. And I was like, okay, the writing is going to come first. Like whatever it is I do, I'm going to do this. And like, I'm not going to allow myself to fall into the patterns of the women that came before me. Not that there's like anything inherently wrong with that, but it's not what I want. And it's told that it's what I should be, but I'm not going to be it. And that was the book that, you know, made me understand that. I could talk to you about these issues all day. Um, and <laughs> I, I definitely think that um, as kind of a, a way of closing is that I, I think that's what you've done in the essays. You've provided your own kind of space and where people can explore those questions, think about what they mean for them by reading through your experience. And yeah, awesome. I think that, that that is that is great. So thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Melissa Falavino whose book just published this month is Tomboyland. Thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. We've been speaking with Melissa Falavino, author of Tomboyland. Thanks for listening.
Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. 